the engineering tools have become so many hacks and so broadly applicable and so complex on top of this like 70s era drawing data model that as engineers, we can no, we're no longer thinking about engineering through first principles, which was needed to make rockets that shoot out from underwater and go into space. And so, you know, my, my main hope is that Entopology, by introducing this new method of, of engineering using the computer in a better way, can help to kind of spur engineers to start thinking again through first principles through the engineering process and really enable these, these revolutionary and most awesome products to be built. The views expressed here do not reflect the views of our respective employers. Hello and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil and I'll be your host today alongside TJ. Hello. Ferris. Hey there. And our special guest, Brad Rothenberg. Hey, thanks for having me. SpexCast is made for space fans like you. Check out new space commentary and mission deep dives on our website, blog.spexcast.com and join the space discussion on forum.spexcast.com. You can also send us a tweet at SpexCast or an email to SpexCast at gmail.com. Brad Rothenberg is the CEO of Entopology. His company provides a software suite that uses advanced computer techniques to optimize the mechanical designs of structures, leading to impressive results. On this episode, Brad will take us through the ins and outs of how generative design techniques are changing the way we design spacecraft. He joins us today remotely via Zoom. Good morning. Hey, good morning. And again, as I said before, thanks for having me on. Sure thing. So to start off, why don't you tell us about yourself? Yeah, so I mean, I actually come from a background outside of engineering or non-traditional engineering. I studied architecture. Actually, before that, I was studying physics uh, in Boulder, Colorado, and then I, I transferred to school to study architecture. And I, I've been into 3D modeling and 3D CAD and 2D CAD since I was like a kid. And in architecture school, I it was, it was in 2005, we just got a 3D printer and I felt very limited by the um, traditional CAD tools in trying to build these 3D printed parts. And, you know, what's interesting in architecture school, 95% of the students were thinking of this machine as like a machine that could print little architecture buildings. Like, you know, in Zoolander, they make the little model of a building. Uh, but ants. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and I was like, this is manufacturing technology, even though the machine we had was like totally not, um, it was a Z Corp machine. It printed in like gypsum powder and you had to like dunk it in super glue, but you could see the potential in this and the traditional CAD tools were extremely limiting. So I ended up having to write my own um, geometry generating software to really make these more functional parts like scaffoldings that would open up and, and close. And so, you know, it, it, this made me realize that, that the problem of geometry generation for manufacturing was was really a core industry problem. And the way that we are gonna design parts is going to shift drastically if this manufacturing technology is really gonna take off. Well, you know, 10, 15 years later, 16 years later, it's taken off. And um, yeah. now Entopology is, is driving that change to, to enable companies out there to really, you know, leverage and take advantage of this advanced manufacturing technology. So what about Entopology sets it apart from uh, a CAD system that you use to design 3D parts? You said it's oriented toward manufacturing and 3D printing. How does Entopology uh, well, so, do that? Yeah, I mean, the core differentiator for us is the way we represent the actual 3D solid model, the geometry. And it's, it's called an implicit model. Like we use a set of 
mathematical functions to give us a representation of the actual solid model. And traditional CAD just represents the surface of a part with little surface patches. And um, what that enables is enables our 3D model to represent essentially any shape, regardless of the complexity, and represent those shapes really fast. Um, there's really like three parts of our technology. There's the implicit modeling as the real differentiator, but then there's that enables field-driven design. So what that means is actually controlling the properties of the geometry. Like say you want to go from something with a lot of holes in one area and then a solid in another area, and you want to blend really smoothly between those sections. And you know maybe you want holes where the part is really hot and you want it to be solid where the part is really cold. You could use the the physics field, the temperature field that comes out of a physics analysis to actually drive where those holes are in the part. Um, which it's actually a good point to touch on like what our actual name is, right? The name and topology right. means any topology, any shape. When, when I started yes. NTOP, I wanted, I wanted to basically remove all geometric limitations to you as an engineer, design engineer to design these like revolutionary advanced products. And, and again, the, not be limited by CAD technology that was built in the late seventies to produce a set of drawings. It wasn't to produce, it wasn't to do engineering work. So what is generative design when it comes to computer models and manufacturing? Yeah, so you know, generative design, we look at as kind of this broad and holistic design methodology. Um, and it's really using the computer, setting up a process that's a computational process that has some inputs, right? You might say, okay, I have this, I have these, I'm trying to do a bracket and connect these these points, or I want to make a heat exchanger that can can cool a certain amount of of you know it could take a certain amount of heat out of a fluid, like in an aircraft. You have a, a heat exchanger that takes bleed air that comes. You know all the air conditioning in your when you're in a plane. This is probably important right now because as we're flying, they have to recirculate the air. All that air comes through an engine in the engine. It's called the bleed air. And when that air comes in, it's very hot. And if you're going into air conditioning you need to cool that air. And so there's a heat exchanger that actually takes the heat from that, that um, air that's coming in and removes it. And so you might, one of the inputs might be, hey, I wanna remove a certain amount of heat from the air because I know I have air coming in that's you know 150 degrees or whatever. Um, and so generative design is really you know, leveraging software to generate the geometry rather than, a, rather than actually drawing something you're setting up the process to make that drawing. So instead of, you know, you, in, instead of actually sitting there and saying, okay, I'm going to make a small hole here, a medium-sized hole here, a big-sized hole here, you're saying, okay, I have this process that's going to generate a set of holes or remove some material based on these goals or constraints. So it almost is a design. It, it puts you in a position of being like a conductor. So you mentioned airplane heat exchangers as an example. Are there other aerospace applications where generative topology comes in into play? Yeah, I mean, in in aircraft design, you know, you have very high performance parts that, you know, whether it's the leading edge of a of an aircraft that you need to cool. Um, weight is obviously really important if you're sending something into space. Every pound that you can remove is you can save a lot of money in doing that. Um, especially in, in commercial aircraft, reducing weight could increase the efficiency of the plane, and so the applications have different categories, whether it's lightweighting, architected materials, rapid design exploration. 
kind of categories of, of applications and more specific examples are like, you know, I want to lightweight the secondary structure of my aircraft. So all of these like little brackets that connect the doors and hinges and stuff like that. Um, another one could be uh, multifunctional optimization, right? Leveraging multi-physics to design a satellite CubeSat bus, right? And so there's, there's a good example of US Air Force building these, the, these CubeSats uh, they were happen to be 3U size, so it's like 30 centimeters by 10 centimeters, so it's small. Um, but it could be applied to bigger satellites. And they came up with a generative design process that would basically automatically generate the CubeSat bus and make it 50% lighter than the traditional CubeSat bus design. And that was through a process that would basically generate this kind of like, so do you know corrugated cardboard, right? And so like there's that, you know, in engineering school or structured in our, in our structures class that the first day the teacher would bring in corrugated cardboard and like a piece of paper and say, okay, these two things weigh the same, but if I stick them out straight, one falls down and one doesn't. Why is that, right? And because you're putting material in a really efficient place in the corrugated cardboard, it makes it stiff. And so what that means is with the same, with, with less material, you can have a part that's just as strong. And so if you imagine making a CubeSat bus, the structure that you know, supports all of this gear that goes on a satellite, whether it's, you know, cameras or sensors or whatever goes up, up there. Um, you know, you want to make that, that those walls really efficient and lightweight and strong. And um, essentially this was a design process to optimize where the corrugations and where the material was going in that shape and by, by, running a generative design process to do that, they were able to get the, the weight down very quickly. And additionally, because it's a, you know, end-to-end -end digital automatic process, you could actually turn the design around in, in a matter of hours rather than someone sitting there saying, okay, I want to draw out every single corrugation in the, in the cardboard. So well, you, as fast as they could iterate on coming up with the light weighting, it was like already modeled because the computer did that work. Instead yeah. of an engineer go and make all the fillets and rounds and extrusions that were required. Exactly. And and you know, if you're a if you're a new engineer graduating school, right? Like you grew up with a 3D printer on your desk, right? Like you're not you're not and, and you go get a job at like, you know, big automaker in the US or big aircraft company in the US. And you get there, like after you've, you know, hacked making 3D printed parts, you get there and they're like, okay, time to do CATIA training. You need to do six months of CATIA training and you need to learn how to do fillets and rounds. And that's when you realize like, if you're going into like doing CAD work and you're interested in 3D modeling, like being a draftsman is actually like just sitting there and doing a bunch of fillets and rounds, right? It's like, too real, Brad. It's too real. <laughs> <laughs> so we hope to change that or we are changing that. So Brad, does this kind of procedural design or generative design um, require extra subject matter expertise or can any engineer or trained in mechanical design pick it up and go? Yeah, so I think it's important to to like take a step back and look at generative design and like most solutions out there are basically these black boxes, right? Like when you look at um, topology optimization as an example of generative design. Do you guys know what topology optimization is? Are you familiar with that? Or, yeah, so topology optimization is essentially one kind of way of doing generative design where essentially you set up some loads around a part and then you remove material where it's not needed and you come you up with- You have a big chunky topology. bracket 
you have a big chunky bracket, you put a weight on one end and you let the computer build the strongest, lightest. Exactly. Position. Exactly. And they kind of create these like alien looking or organic looking parts. Generally, sometimes they look really ugly. Um, because if they're your mesh size and weird stuff like that doesn't come out right. And so, you know, if you're not a subject matter expert, you can just kind of say, okay, I know I have some load over here and I, it's fixed over here. Let me run it and let me get a part back. Now, the big disadvantage with that is like the engineering knowledge or the engineering know-how, if that's kind of created from a big software company like ours, for example, we're not, you know, you as an engineer is, are no longer in control of what that process is, right? And so for us, I would say, like, yes, you can use NTOP if you're not a subject matter expert. And, and But if you are a subject matter expert, you can actually, in NTOP, you're programming and creating that generative design workflow. And so that's one of the, one of the advantages of NTOP is, like, you can, you can actually package up an application in NTOP and create a black box for somebody else to use and somebody else to access so that the subject matter experts information is, is, is getting in there. And so, you know, like an example I can give with this is, you know, say you want to shave some weight off of a plastic injection molded part, right? Um, I might want to modify the wall thickness of that injection molded part so that I'm making it kind of thick in areas where it needs to be thick, but then thin, in areas where it's, there's not so much stress on it and it's not going to break. Um, now, if I'm a molding expert, I'm going to know the constraints of my process, right? I know that the walls can't just go from like really thin to really thick immediately because there's going to be not enough. It's going to crack there when it cools, right? Um, and so if I'm a subject matter expert, I can actually program in in NTOP those, those parameters and constraints so that somebody who's just a design engineer who's not a subject matter expert in the injection molding process could then say, okay, I want to build, I, I just want to input some surfaces from my model and I want to maybe say, I'm going to make it out of this plastic. I'm going to make it out of peak because it's going into space and I'm going to have a target material amount to use. And the output is some 3D CAD model that's going to go back into a CAD system. So you're, you're, you're able to kind of create and package these applications and you know it's about how abstract do you want to um like what's the layer of abstraction that you want to give to another engineer to kind of operationalize or use this, the software with whereas like traditionally topology optimization is just a black box whereas in ntop you can have topology optimization as part of this workflow but the subject matter expert is kind of in control there and, you know, in some, in some ways, it's almost more like MATLAB, but you have a 3D solid model coming out, right? Uh, do you guys, have you guys used MATLAB? Yes. Yeah, and um, what you're saying, it strikes true for my experience in aerospace engineering where, um, at you know, sometimes on the job, there's this person and they've, you know, crafted this, uh, at the time, it was an Excel, Excel spreadsheet for 20 years of their career, and it was the... the holiest of holy Excel spreadsheets and was great for use in design, but I didn't know how it worked, but I didn't have to because I was using the outputs and that subject matter expert, I could go and know that he crafted it in a way that was good. And so like here, a subject matter expert would be able to make sure that an amateur or a, a more 
what's the a rookie engineer yeah yeah or, or or maybe it's not even about a rookie maybe it's like hey i'm engineering this part and there's there needs there's a design engineer who's working on the kind of shape and design there's an analyst involved in the process who's going to you know do the aerodynamic analysis which a design engineer might not be doing and there might be a dynamics analyst because there's some vibrations loading and stuff like that and then and they can all add their constraints into the black box and the mechanical designer or manufacturer person that's coming up with the model will implicitly have all that knowledge baked in mm-hmm. when they run. Yeah. The, or they're the collaborating together to create this workflow in the same, in the same process. And, and that could be an end topology or it might not be an end topology, right? Like in the example, in, in, in heat exchanger applications, they're using fluent in ANSYS to do the, the, computational fluid dynamics, right? We don't have a CFD solver in NTOP, but that CFD expert can collaborate with the design engineer who's working on the packaging and the, the structures of the heat exchanger so that they're sure that, hey, if I'm going to be the design engineer, if I'm making this heat exchanger packaging, I know that it's going to be able to be analyzed by my expert CFD analyst, and he's going to be able to give me the data back that can then actually update and drive maybe a key design parameter, like pressure, for example, maybe I have a field of pressure data throughout my heat exchanger and I want to just open up the channels just a little bit where there's higher pressure to kind of tune it. Right. You know, you might iterate back and forth between running the analysis in fluent, pulling that back into NTOP as an input. And that's, that is the, the workflow that, you know, really tying these tools together digitally, not again, not trying to say like, hey, NTOP is just going to like do everything because we're this extremely broad tool. We're actually very focused in terms of being this like really, really good with the geometry. And Brad, I was curious, how, how do these, so you mentioned some integrations with other tools like uh, Fluent and Ansys. How do these integrations work? Are there, are there kind of APIs or are these built-in integrations? Some of them are through the command calling software in the back end via command line. Others are like, the, the most basic is through a file that gets output. And then there's like some higher level controller, whether it's like a script that's running that's calling the different pieces of software or NTOP calling the, the other piece of software from the command line or NTOP being called from the command line in another piece of software also. Um, and then there's more API level integrations as well, where we have partnerships with companies like machine manufacturers and, and companies like that. I see. And then for the outputs of NTOP itself, the 3D CAD models, typically what kind of post-processing is done to those CAD models? Do engineers typically kind of take those outputs and still have to you know, make some uh, context- changes that are more contextual? Or are those... CAD models that are generated kind of ready to print or ready to, to build. So you can go directly to the machine to build the part from NTOP without actually going back into CAD. And so that's like, usually your, your manufacturing information is going to come straight from NTOP, but there'll also be like an archival piece of data that has to go back into the CAD system because there's like fit checking and all this other stuff that happens in the CAD system. And, and it's a pretty interesting problem because there's all sorts of associativity that needs to be maintained between the CAD system and the surfaces and the IDs of the surfaces. And so in some cases you might bring something back into CAD and like have to, you know, reconnect some surfaces to it. In other cases, you might bring that data back into CAD and it's like ready to go and it's good. And it's, 
totally associative and, and, it, and it works really well. Um, and I mean, a lot of times we'll output, a lot of companies will just output a step file and work with the, the data like that in CAD, which is not necessarily ideal. I see. I, I, and from what I've seen in the past is that sometimes CAD packages, like, you know, maybe Katia or SolidWorks have some of their own proprietary formats. Mm -hmm. Is, th is that a challenge that you run into with interacting with those systems? And how do you get around issues like that? I mean, it's definitely, I mean, I think proprietary model formats in general are bad for the industry. I don't know what you guys, what your thoughts are on this also, but I think this idea that these file formats are only readable by one vendor is, is awful. Um, you know, we end up having to license a lot of translators so we can read and write these different formats and it's just, it's a pain. And I mean, there are like step as a format is an open standard. JT is open, but there's some licensing involved with it. Um, it's it's the file formats. Is, it's like a mess of hundreds of different file formats, and all of them have different ways of representing basically the same set of data. So so it sounds like a challenge that is tackled one problem at a time with one solution at a time. Yep, one CAD system at a time also. So diving into the actual generative design. Um, can you kind of give a high level of what the computer is doing when it's coming up with these different patterns? Definitely. Well, first off, like I would say that the computer is only going to come up with the structure that, that you program it to come up with, right? Like it's, it's still not magic, right? A computer is going to run some procedure that you generate. Now that, that procedure might create something that's surprising to you or more complex than the kind of individual parts that you, you control that. Um, but in NTOP, I would maybe make the analogy back to like these layers of abstraction, right? Like when you're piloting and let's say, let's make an analogy, like say you're piloting an aircraft, right? Like for you as a pilot, you're not just controlling the stepper motors at each like, you know, aileron and rudder to drive the plane, right? You're using a yoke or a joystick to control like a highly set complex set of motions to make sure the plane stays upright and there's some adjustment going there. And so with NTOP, you know, like it might sound crazy, but it's not totally different, right? Like we have this incredibly powerful geometry model at the core and that can make any, you know, part with, let's say unlimited complexity almost in quotes, right? And so you can actually work with that geometry model at a very low level through a set of mathematical operations, right? Like if I want to make a circle, I could say my circle is, I could define my circle as square root of X squared plus Y squared, but you probably don't want to define a circle like that. You probably want to say, Hey, I'm going to make a circle with a center point here and a radius here. And you know, that's not all that different than CAD, right? Like you can, you're drawing circles. You might be like, well, what's, what's the difference, right? But like, what you can do in NTOP where it is different is now you can actually say, hey, make me a billion circles that vary in size radiating outward in the spiral from let's say this heat source in the center. And you know, having that abstraction is extremely powerful because you can, you know, the heat source is some physics coming in, you're controlling some parameters with that heat source. And you know, what if that heat source changes? Because I'm working at this more abstract layer, I could just move my heat source in the model and all those circles now update in the model. Um, what if you take it even further? Say I want to design an aircraft structure that has the structure of a bird bone. Have you, have you guys ever seen a section cut of a bird's bone? I haven't. 
it's it's like this phenomenally complex structure. It's amazing. It's like it's all of these cells. It looks like a sponge, but imagine if a sponge had material where it needed to be, so it was stiff, and the sponge was bigger holes where it wasn't stiff. Right. And you know, you could see that nature has essentially optimized this bird bone to have exactly the material where it needs to be. And you know, if you were to try and draw that in a CAD system, like it would be totally insane to to you would sit there for years trying to draw and add fillets between all these all these edges. And so you know, that's basically that you could think of that as a layer of abstraction say, okay, you know, make this foam. I'm going to define the parameters of this foam. Like give me a foam that has a density that's really high to really low in these two areas. And let's control that through a field and say, you know, where it's hot, make it, you know, open and where it's cold, make it closed. Like this, this math, it sounds really extendable and really like the the potential is enormous um, but it comes down to what you program into it and um, how complex you want to make the the model or the the generative model for the system and i want to ask if that's up to um like obviously ntop makes the engine that's capable of all this but do you work with your vendors to build uh algorithms and and generative models to do this complex thing or is it do you use like formats like uh, MathCAD or, or whatever, MATLAB, um, that are familiar to people in industry already? How do you de- design the models? So we could, yeah. So a lot of, like, we release these toolkits that package these applications, like some of the most common applications. Um, but the user community is actually sharing applications with each other also. So there's like a super user, Matt Chomper out there, and he's posting files of things that are just like, like he has a block that makes a bird bone essentially. And it, and you know, you could, you don't need to be an expert in math to make a bird bone. Now you can just take his like block, the, the way it works in top is you have these blocks, blocks are essentially these functions. And so like you can literally have a bird bone function. It takes in a solid model and it takes in a field and it outputs the, a bone with that specific parameter set. And, you know, what you could do then is you could actually open up that block and see how it was built in NTOP. And you might want to change it and say, okay, instead of having holes that are arranged in this pattern, maybe I want holes arranged in another pattern. Or instead of running a topology optimization to figure out the outer shape where the holes should be, maybe I'm going to manually define that with a surface that's input. And so you can start to combine all of these different parts of an engineering process together and, and really create this, this application. Yeah. Um, I had, I had one other question about the models. Um, and the way you describe it sounds like there's, you know, a a community behind it, sharing ideas and coming up with new things, but also it kind of, um, putting in math and being surprised by the result is something, um, that we've seen over the last couple of years with machine learning, um, where there's this really complicated, math engine in something like a neural network that all it is is statistics and math but nuanced or and surprising results can come out the end to the point where there are whole applications and businesses built on object detection and images so like when it comes to machine learning does that relate to how ntop approaches things and could you combine machine learning this is a huge question um but I, I think there's a little bit of confusion <laughs> yeah. when you see these things coming out. And it's like, oh, that looks weird. You think it's machine learning somehow. Well, well, you always hear like, I mean, you always hear, oh, the next generation is cognitive generative design or AI driven generative design or, 
you know, the AI, this, this AI engine, I'm just going to say, Hey, I want an airplane and AI is going to produce this airplane. And that's just not happening yet. Right. Like, like the design of an airplane today is still like almost more like an art than, than a science. There's so many different competing resources. There's all of the, you know, all the, the, all of the, the tubes that bring cool air through an airplane, you know, if those tubes have to get a little bit bigger, then all of a sudden the structure has to change. And if the structure has to change, maybe the engine has to change. And there's all these codependent aspects in the, in the aircraft right now, which are made up of different teams working together. And um, so this idea that AI is just going to generate the, the result, um, like make a flying plane, I think is, is we're not there yet as an industry, but where we are at is, starting to use AI to recognize shapes and understand more about shapes. And in the, in the research side, there's a couple of recent papers. Um, I have to, I can pull them and send you guys links to them of using AI for shape recognition, using AI to understand properties of shapes and recognize a shape as a certain feature in a shape. So you can start to understand more aspects of the shape. And if you can understand more aspects of the shape, maybe you can generate things that are becoming more like one thing versus another thing. Um, the other aspect is the statistics, you know, as engineers, we've been using statistics for years for design studies, trade studies, right? We'll, we'll set up a design of experiments, change the parameters that are input and we'll generate, you know, a hundred results or a thousand results or yeah, even like Monte Carlo simulation, you vary the inputs by a little bit and see how things diverge or converge. So exactly. And you know, one of the big limitations in those big design studies has been the traditional CAD model that's backing it breaks at some point, right? Like you're trying to, you know, you have two arms that are connected at a point and those arms, the angle between those arms is a parameter that's changing. And as soon as those arms start to hit more than a certain amount, the model falls apart because it can't resolve the fillet that's between them because the fillet's bigger than the, the angle. And um, with, with the model that NTOP uses, that just doesn't happen. And so you can do these like gigantic design studies of, you know, thousands of, of parts that are out and then start to measure things from those parts to make sure that you're, you're getting a part that meets your requirements. Um, and I think also with, with, with the, one of the nice things with engineering is, you know, really you're, you're trying to find a part that meets the requirements. You don't always need to have the most optimal part. Um, in fact, a lot of times, having a part that's 95% of the way there is, is, is good enough. And it will, will, it will still be better than what's designed today. So Brad, I'm curious. So what are some of the current limitations of the, of the generative design process or some of the lattice based structures? Where do they work best and where do they perhaps fall short? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think in general, so like if we, step back from just lattices for a second and look at kind of generative design as a whole, um, which I, th I think the limitations are in that like systems level design, like I was just talking about. Um, and I think, like I was saying before, you have all these mutual dependent systems and, and if you can, if you can shave some weight off the structure, you know, you might not need as powerful of an engine, which might mean now you don't need as big of a structure so you can shave more weight off the structure. And then you can, you know, even have an even smaller engine. So you have these feedback loops that happen in, at the systems level, which is not connected yet to the part level design as, as, it, as it should be. And um, 
so I think that's that's one specific place um, specific to lattice structures. Lattice structures are actually like a lot of times really bad for for structural applications. Um, you have they're they're good for like energy absorbing for heat exchange or where you have high surface area. But a lot of people will say, oh, give me a lattice, give me a structure with all these little beams as a lattice to reduce the weight. And that doesn't actually make a lot of sense because all those beams will end up buckling in a certain way. Now, if you have cells, if you have solid walls, that actually is 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 a pretty efficient way of building parts. But in in certain, you know, certain 3D printing technology can produce solid walls, others, others can't. And um, I have you guys seen seen parts where these have been very like generative design has been really successful versus not successful. Yeah, I was going to ask if you could name some examples specifically in in spacecraft. Yeah, so spacecraft. I mean, the satellite example is a really good one. Lightweighting satellite. Um, we have another satellite customer that lightweights their brackets. So you know, this the satellite itself has a bunch of stuff that needs to attach to it, and you connect those normally with these brackets and being able to design those quickly, efficiently, and light is important. And so the company that's just automating the design of the brackets. In fact, that was one of the first parts that flew from our software. Um, it was a bracket from InSight, which was the Mars lander. Right. We did a whole deep dive on that. I, it's like 10 pages long. I spent way too much time on it, but it's so interesting. That mission. It's I, unbelievable. Started. Oh my God. Yeah, and, that's... It, and how it landed also. But so this, these are the brackets that connect the solar panels to the to the spacecraft. Great. Awesome. Um, do you have an example of where field-driven design or generative design would not really apply in a spacecraft? Like where you would, you could, but you really shouldn't use it? Like I would say like any electronics design, you're not going to use it to like design a lot of the electronics. Um, today, we're looking into like optics examples, design of like optics casings and, and optics housings. We haven't had a, like one of the first generative design examples I actually worked on pre-end topology were these high energy laser mirrors. So it was like the mirror, it was part of an optics housing, but I'm actually thinking like, like more of the optics assemblies. Mm-hmm. Um, like stray light, like um, yep, building yep, something so like stray correct. light doesn't bounce into the mirror. And... Mm-hmm. Um, really interesting example that's being developed is like use doing like radiation analysis. So you can shave weight off of the boxes. You need to shield all the electronics. So doing the shielding design is an example where, where that's, that's, being and top is being used for right now and the radiation analysis is done kind of in real time as the design parameters change of the of the casing i mean space is also space like you guys have it kind of easy because you could just test the part on the ground and the the loading is in the launching but once you get into space there's like no load on the part so any structural part is like game for advanced manufacturing and 3d printing whereas in commercial aircraft you know, you have all these fatigue requirements that you can't just like test it on the ground and then fly it because you're reducing the lifespan of the part um, and it's loaded the whole time. And so, you know, anything that's structural, anything that's thermal, the multi-physics structural and thermal parts are really, really good applications. But a lot of times you have all this, like for the design of a part that's structural, that's a really simple example. There's a lot of composite parts on on satellites, um, we have a customer that's doing this really innovative, like five-axis robotic layup of composites and kind of putting the composite fiber exactly where it needs to be to be really structural. It's not for a spacecraft; it's actually for a, a aircraft. But um, 
something like that could be an interesting application in space, but we haven't been, we haven't seen real composite examples in, in space yet. Um, right. I think, um, first of all, I just want to mention that I think that's the first time I've ever heard someone say that spa- people in space have it easy. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, that's a great segue into uh, the next thing I wanted to ask about, which is um, introducing these new technologies into the space industry. Because when, when it comes to spacecraft and aerospace engineering, flight heritage plays a huge role in the acceptance and widespread use of a technology. So in the traditional approach, like designs are rigorously tested and analyzed before they make it off the launch pad and um, flying something new is considered risky. So um, additive manufacturing and generative design in general seem to go against that grain of using something um, with flight heritage uh, with such a strong emphasis on iteration and and simulation. Um, So I want to ask if you've had trouble um, or if what... What has, you been, what has been your experience bringing this new technology and new philosophy into the aerospace industry? Okay, so I, I actually have a funny story for you guys about, about this. And it involves, you know, trying to introduce new simulation technology into the, into the market. And so you could, you know, we were, we were talking with, with one of the people who uses Zentop and they were like, you know, when we were introducing this new simulation solver, into our process and it was for a satellite that's you know spinning around the earth right now and they're like okay we ran we had to you know we wanted to do some tests on this new this new solver to introduce it into the into the industry and we ran the analysis and the analysis versus the original analysis was off it was actually more accurate and and it said wait a second this shouldn't actually be you know circulating the earth at this altitude, it should be a different altitude. Something, something's, something's up, what's going on. And, and, and they were like, the satellite's not falling out of the sky. It's not moving. So go rerun the analysis in the original solver. And so they ran the analysis in the original solver and they actually got back the same results as the new one, like within the tolerance. And they were like, wait a second, what's going on here? Like, again, Satellite's not out of the sky. It's it's navigating. It's good. What what's what what is going on? We we didn't lose like you know they're checking their phone maybe like oh our GPS didn't just disappear right? It's working. It's up there. Um, and so they were thinking a little bit and they were like, how big? How many elements was your mesh? And the person probably said something like, oh, you know like six million elements or something really high resolution. You know we have a lot of you know probably using modern memory. And the person was like, dude, or like, yeah, this was analyzed in like 1984. You couldn't have a 6 million element match. Go rerun it in the original solver with the 50,000 elements and tell me what you get back. And they come back and now it meets the original. It's exactly the same results as the original one. And so there's like, (laughs) there's like all sorts of stories like this, where when you're going in and trying to like, you know, change an industry that there's just like friction after friction point right and so you know the some of the biggest named aviation air, aircraft companies out there and space companies you know are still they still have rooms filled with old computers where they're running tests and and analyses and software that was built a long time ago and so bringing you know it's definitely a major challenge to introduce new engineering tools into the market um and actually, that's one of the reasons why we 
we're not saying, hey, use our analysis to like validate a part. The analysis side of things is is very, very hard to push up against. Um, on the, oh, go ahead. Um, I was going to ask like, what what is that process for introducing um, it, your technology into this this system that has so so much heritage and um, so i mean for us it's not trying to go in and like replace everything and say hey rip out katia rip out nx and use ntop now because we're just not again that would be a a 10-year benchmarking process where they have to run and validate everything and imagine there's the simulation solvers on top of that which they also have to validate Um, and so instead it's like okay you have a lot of trouble you're trying to you know, make this just the CubeSat bus, just the structure. You're going to 3D print it, and it's a more advanced aircraft, and and you know you can test it on the ground and fly it. It's a small satellite bus, and it's there's a little bit higher risk profile there. Uh, like you, you know, let's just just introduce NTOP to solve this one problem that you just literally can't solve with your current tools. Um, and what's what's interesting is the 3D printing technology now is at a point where it's it's there's part space has a you know hundreds of thousands of parts that are flying in space that have been 3d printed in metal and the the processes are starting to get to a mature enough point that now the friction point is in software and so where ntop comes in and it it is in these you know these these really hard engineering problems initially and it's it's not so much trying to go up against the friction of process change but instead it's like okay there's a new process being introduced into the industry like 3d printing and and top really really solves that specific pain point and you know as we start to grow and develop in the industry there's more problems that customers are discovering that they can solve with ntop because it is this like open platform right you're creating your own applications in it and so that that kind of like more engineer driven deployment rather than like trying to change the process, which is like top down to VP level has been what's worked, what's really working for us. And, and the industry is shifting. Like when you look at the next generation of aircraft and spacecraft, like the customers themselves are pushing for more performance. They're pushing for more sustainability. And the, the big OEMs out there are saying, we're only going to be able to do this with advanced manufacturing, right? Like I think BAE Systems just made a press release saying their sixth generation fighter needs to be 30% 3D printed, which is like nuts, right? Uh, to think about today. But what about, I mean, for, for you guys, like, I think, like, it also goes back to, you know, hey, if I'm a young engineer, I just graduated school and I'm used to having a 3D printer at my desk why are you forcing me to like write some Fortran code to do the analysis? Why, why, why do I have to use these, these tools that are from a different generation today to solve the problems? And so I think, again, removing the friction, like the, the, the student users have been phenomenal for NTOP also in terms of like being able to really prove out and and do some higher risk stuff that maybe a company would never do. And then they get hired by that company and start doing it there. And that's really like awesome for us. We've had that happen a number of times now. Okay. So I guess the other side of the equation here is a lot of these designs that are generated by kind of, you know, these algorithms are 
mostly ideal for additive manufacturing. So I'd imagine that the other side of the coin here is kind of the capabilities of the 3D printers that exist today. Where are we with those capabilities and are there any kind of limitations that we currently run against or is it just software limitations at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't, I don't know if you guys have seen this in the industry, but there's this impression that, you know, additive is just going to solve everything and everything's going to be 3D printed in the future, right? You're just going to like... There are companies 3D printing entire rockets as, you know, like that's that's already happening. So, And it's true. Um, I'm interested to see how they're going to print the electronics also in, in, in that. But I think that... I, I think it's a phenomenal goal. And I think, you know, they, they, they will get there. And I think the, the big question is like today in production, is that an efficient way to make a part? Like if you could make a rocket out of sheet metal, is it actually more efficient today with advanced manufacturing, you know, having CNC sheet metal bending and assembly, if you could glue it together, for example, um, is that more efficient than trying to 3d print this whole rocket today? Um, I don't, I don't have the answer yet for that, but I think, you know, today in the applications that are flying and the applications that our customers are building in NTOP where additive is really shining are these, these kind of critical parts that might've been made with an assembly of multiple components. They require, you know, really high performance. You can consolidate them into a single part. So you're reducing the part count and you could make the part lighter and you could make it easier to source and get it quicker. And so to really hit all of those like higher performance, getting it faster and reducing the cost, like that's where this, these kind of consolidation and performance applications, things that are really advanced like heat exchangers where you have all these parts that get brazed together and the cracks at the brazing joints break over time. If you can print that as one single piece. And also if you can make the geometry in an optimal way, you can have a more efficient heat exchanger. That's a really good, a good application today. Um, I think longer term, you're going to see really interesting stuff happening for like primary aircraft structure, like the primary structure of Orion, for example, that's not 3D printed today. Um, maybe five to 10 years in the next generation version, it, it will be. Um, and mainly because there's a lot of a lot of, you know, there's a lot of cost savings and it's more efficient to make those parts with a large scale directed energy deposition process, but the process is not there yet for, for that scale of part. Um, the other aspect is, you know, additive is not just for end use parts, but it's used throughout the manufacturing process. So even for these big, like the big primary structure is usually built from a forging, all of the jigs and fixtures for that, for that forging, um, you know, for big cast parts, you might actually 3D print the, the, the part and build the casting from that. And so I think, you know, looking at the end-to-end -end manufacturing process, additive plays a gigantic role in that and has a lot of potential to play even more of a role, but it's not the um, be-all, end-all. Um, another example, like, so Sierra Turbine is a company that's producing these miniature um, turbine engines. And they, they use NTOP to design an engine that used to be 61 individual components put together. They built it in one component with a much more efficient um, uh, fuel injector in the engine. And so the engine actually lasts longer and needs less servicing for the same power. It, it's a lot less weight and it uses the gas in a more efficient way.
and there's no seals or gaskets where those parts come together. So that's what increases the service life. Uh, but I, yeah, but like the systems level, like, oh, we're just gonna like press a button and get a rocket. Like, like it's still gonna be built either right, you know, with the, with this, I, I think the interesting thing with relativity is the 3D printer that they have does have the potential to, you know, have multi-material being printed in like you could, you can have some copper where you need to move electricity through it, but I think it's 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 still a ways out. So like pressing a button and saying, "Oop, I have a rocket now. Let's let's fly it." So a question I have is: when new manufacturing techniques come onto the scene, do you have to change anything about your models and simulations used to generate those, those designs? So either new ways to three D print, new materials, new you know other machines, or is your tool just still separated from the actual manufacturing step uh you absolutely have to have to change the the parameters in the model because you know you like and it depends like are you going from a laser process to a laser process and the materials changing are you going to like a single laser to a quad laser and now the the size requirements are different that might be not a lot of changes that you need to make but like say you're going from a metal laser process to an extruded polymer process right like the 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 strength of the part is going to be very different in the material so that's going to be that might be an input the material the the build process is going to have different parameters so you know in each different 3d printing process there's kind of different geometric parameters that the process can build right like if you're extruding like if you're extruding plastic going up you can't just like extrude it going across with nothing underneath it right it's going to slump or fall or it's not going to span that um, with laser metal processes, as the metal's cooling, there's a lot of stresses in the part that are being re relieved and the part will bend and move in a certain way. So it needs to be supported and locked down so it doesn't move out of position. And then you can do stri strain relief by doing heat treat after it. And so it's a matter of kind of tuning the parameters in your model for that specific process. And just because you set up a model for, you know, uh, uh, extruded plastic process doesn't mean you can just like switch it over to a metal process and, and, and press build because the parameters are changing. But you might, you might be able to go there and say, Hey, you know what? My metal extruder has a 20 degree angle. Now we figured out this new way of extruding and it's a different polymer that can, you know, maybe do a 10 degree angle. And that's just like one parameter change. So it'd be relatively easy in that case. Like you could think of it like programming, right? If 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 you're writing software and the underlying architecture changes of the computer that you're running on, there might be some little changes you need to make. But like if you design, if you build something for Mac, it's pretty hard to port over to Windows. How is the the software, the capabilities of your the engineering tools, really shaped how products and engineering designs look on after they're built? Yeah, well, so I mean, I think there's a couple of very interesting examples in this case. Like, well, first, like automotive, for example, if you look at, you know, really old school cars, they have these like very curvy shapes because they were built by hand, right? And then you look at the first computer drafted cars, they looked like, you know, Volvos from the early 80s with like straight edges and straight walls. And then Citroen comes in and they're starting to use surface design in cars and starts to have curved walls on it. Um, Probably the the most interesting example in in aerospace is the uh, you know first stealth aircraft, the F-117 Nighthawk, which 
looks so cool. When I was a kid, I was like, wow, that's what stealth planes look like. Really sharp edges. That must be really stealthy, yeah. right? Which is I mean, like what came know, up in video games too. It's all pol- like polygons and stuff because that was back on N64 and whatever. Yeah, exactly. And so like I thought as a kid, by the way, my favorite plane growing up was SR-71. I like drew that all when I was a kid and you know, it's nice and smooth. There was no computers used in the design of SR-71. SR-71 is extremely stealthy. And so, you know, F-117 comes out with all these like, you know, facets and that's, you're like, wow, is that really stealth? That's really cool. But if you know about like stealth design, actually having edges is, I think, really bad. And so what the, the reason it was faceted was that computers at the time, they use a computer to generate the design and run an algorithm to come up with what the optimal shape was. But computers could only represent a model with like 10,000 polygons. And so, you know, they could only resolve the shape of that plane to those polygons. And actually, they, I think they had to build like a special flight um, controller so that the plane could fly correctly because it was so like not aerodynamic in that case. But, um, you know, I think that's a really good example of how the design tools influence the shape of a part. And now, you know, and topology comes along and has this new implicit model and way of approaching implicit model. Like I'm, I can't wait to see the first like aircraft design that's built in and top. Um, related to that. So, uh, you, you spoke about engineering tools, but also the compute tools. Computers have come a long way, which is goes hand in hand with that. NVIDIA just came out with their new latest graphics card that just blows everything else away. And um, so it's got me thinking, you know, what what makes Entopology software work better? Like, are you limited by the computer hardware? Does this run in the cloud? Like, how so does that the, work? The, the, the core way to think about our modeling technology is that you could understand and probe the geometry without having to know everything about the whole model. So you could understand parts locally in the model without having to know everything. Whereas in a traditional CAD-based model, you have to generate all of these surfaces and you're only representing. And and the second part is in a traditional CAD model, the geometric data that you have is essentially only stored in surfaces, wrapping a solid. So it's just hollow inside. So if you have two points on the inside of a CAD part, you, it's very hard to differentiate them. You just do a lot of work to do that. And so the legacy, you know, CAD systems are built on top of these kernels that were designed in the late 70s, early 80s that run on a single core of a CPU. And it's a major limitation to that technology. Um, with this, with our implicit model, because we're able to understand and probe the geometry locally without having to resolve the whole thing, we could actually send bits of the geometry to different compute cores, whether it's different parts of the GPU, different cores on a CPU or different cores on a GPU, and start to do things in 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 more real time, regardless of the complexity of the model. And so, in some ways, you know, our model is essentially following the track of GPUs getting more advanced. And and as GPUs get more advanced, more and more stuff is going to be able to be done in absolute real time, regardless of how complex the model is. You'll be able to move a slider. And this really advanced heat exchanger will kind of update as you as you move the slider around. Now yeah, you have what, to wait a couple seconds for the model to resolve. On your website, there are some really complicated designs in in like a showcase set to show what Ntop can do. And um, one of my first thoughts was like, they must have in a, like either spent a lot of money in the cloud or like have this beefy machine because that would melt my computer if I yeah. So at home. so 
what I, I'm going to do a shameless promotion for a second, if that's okay. But what I would recommend is to go to YouTube and search for Entopology and look at the Entop Live videos. Um, I'm pretty sure almost all of them are done from laptops, just oh, like wow. a standard a standard laptop. And those are, most of them I believe are just done in real time in the software. It's like a, it, the idea with Entop Live on YouTube was basically to have three times a week an application engineer from Entop get up and kind of demo a really do like a, a demo of something really cool that they've seen or done with a customer or developed on their own in Entop in the last week and show that off. And then we also release all the, so the other thing that's really cool about Entop Live is it's not just like watch it and try and do it yourself. You could actually click a button and download all the files, examples, and th download those blocks that were used in that file. So if you want to actually use it yourself, you can, you can do that and, and build on top of it. Do you think Ntop? Uh, that's kind of a, a way um, that I've seen the the maker community grow, where um, someone you know is really good at what they do and they share their knowledge, share their files, um, and it helps the the community grow. In that case, with hobbyists, is Ntop like able to scale back from enterprise and be used for an amateur or a hobbyist, or is it mostly geared toward? manufacture sustainable, very high performance parts in the enterprise space. I mean, I think it's taking that hobbyist mentality and allowing it to scale into all engineers, right? And because that's kind of what our mentality is in working together in general. But the the tooling that's traditionally in the enterprise doesn't allow you to do that. Software engineering does. So software engineering in the enterprise or hobbyists, software engineering has kind of broken that that enterprise wall and, you know, the biggest companies that are creating aircraft are using open source software in their design of the, the aircraft. Right. And so, you know, my, one of my other kind of goals or objectives with NTOP is really to enable mechanical engineering to kind of work more like software engineering in that regard, right? Like with being able to build off of other people's work with able to share remix other people's workflows. And so like NTOP live is one attempt at that um, in terms of our product roadmap going forward, a lot of, the focus for NTOP over the next years and in enabling more of this seamless sharing in the product and, and, and enabling more of the community to develop. Um, and, you know, maybe you only want to share locally in your organization, or maybe you want to, maybe you just want to pull stuff from the open source community into your organization and not share anything out. That's okay. If you want to share it out, you can do that. I think it's, we can start to enable that. And Brad, just out of curiosity, are there any current plans for, and we can also have this off the record, but are there any, are there currently any plans for a community edition for those hobbyists or any kind of, um, yeah. So, I mean, we're, engine? we're, yeah, we're definitely discussing that internally and, and figuring out what that would look like, what that would mean for now for student, our student version is free. So if you're a student, you get access to NTOP for free. If you, if you have a student email email us and we'll get you a version. I see there's an RIT student Zoom. Hey, that, that, that. <laughs> Wait, you're going to have to cut that off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah, I think building up the community is, and, and, you know, if, if you're, you know, working at a startup, if you're an engineer that wants to start using NTOP, just shoot us, shoot us, shoot us an email or, or put in your information on the website and we'll, we'll we'll get you guys set up with a, at least a, a demo version of the software. 
I mean, I guess, yeah. I guess shifting gears a bit to bigger picture as we start to kind of reach the end of our time is I know Anthropology has just recently raised some additional funding. And I was kind of curious, um, what is what is Anthropology's next big goal or, or next milestone to reach with that, I mean, to, with that funding? To really to extend into other field into other manufacturing fields and really look at advanced manufacturing as not solely metal 3D printing and not solely polymer 3D printing, but look at advanced manufacturing like the foothold we have in the composites design, looking at more, you know, generation, digital generation of of, of cast forged and, and injection molded parts. And um, you know, addressing other problems outside of that are that are more multi-physics-based problems like antennas, like more heat exchangers, more cooling, more sustainability-focused type parts. Um, Because again, if you look at where the engineering is done in a spacecraft, it's not just on the mechanical components, but the antenna design, like I was saying earlier, the optics design, radiation analysis and stuff like that, and really bringing in more, more physics, more design parameters into the process. And, you know, maybe we will have, you know, in a few years, a block that generates a whole spacecraft in NTOP where you just plug in the, the parameters for the spacecraft and it generates, it resolves it all the way down to all of the details. Um, be an awesome spacecraft. We've been watching the space industry and, and in the space industry for a long time on this podcast. And um, it feels like we're getting to that. We're approaching the limit of what these technologies that were first pioneered in the, in the sixties uh, can really do for us. And so um you know, I personally have been on the lookout for what these next key technologies will be to enable us to settle colonies on Mars and and beyond, you know, and, and do some extra like outer solar system things. So, so I actually have an interesting, interesting point on that, which I kind of want to end on, which is like, you know, as engineers in the 60s, we built rockets that would literally shoot out from underwater and that were capable of going into space, Right. And we built those with slide rules. There were no computers, right? And we were able to test them and fly them. And it's unbelievable what, what we can do. And I feel like it, we're, we're so nascent into leveraging computers for engineering processes. And I think, you know, the point that we've hit is the engineering tools have become so many hacks and so broadly applicable and so complex on top of this like 70s era drawing data model that as engineers, we can no, we're no longer thinking about engineering through first principles, which was needed to make rockets that shoot out from underwater and go into space. And so, you know, my, my main hope is that Entopology, by introducing this new method of, of engineering using the computer in a better way, can help to kind of spur engineers to start thinking again through first principles, through the engineering process, and really enable these, these revolutionary and most awesome products to be built because of that. And that's the future I want to live in. So that that's excellent. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you, Brad. For people listening to the show and they want to learn more about NTOP or get in touch with you, where should they go? So the first place I would go is YouTube and watch the NTOP Live videos to, to see the capabilities of the software in action. And second, I would go to entopology.com and you can request a trial copy of the software. That'll get you a username, login access to a trial and all the support files and training materials that you need. Thank you for your time. Yeah. Appreciate it. Good stuff. Yeah. Thanks for having me guys. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of SpecsCast. If you liked it, be sure to subscribe to get future ones on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you download this show. You can check out a huge backlog of past episodes and blog posts, including interviews with key people in the space industry, in-depth articles on spacecrafts and rockets, and commentaries on recent events in the space industry, all on our website, blog.specscast.com. Also, be sure to let us know what you think of the show. Uh, You can leave a review on iTunes or your podcast service, reach out to us directly via Twitter at Specscast, or send an email to specscast at gmail.com. If you want to make a difference in the space industry, you can also donate or apply to the Patty Grace Smith Fellowship and Brooke Owens Fellowship. There are two foundations that are bringing racial and gender equality in aerospace. You can check them out at pgsfellowship.org and brookeowensfellowship.org. Our music is by Nelson Scott.